Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our series in, in, uh, in Romans. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, wrecked. I didn't know it was going to turn into a two-part uh, sermon, uh, but really just God laid it on my heart this week as I read, again, the rest of chapter 9 of Romans to talk about it from a different perspective. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 33. There's an old Chinese parable um, about a, a Chinese man who had, he had one horse and he had one son. And one day the horse, out of control, wandered away with his little boy on it. The boy got on the horse and the, the horse just completely wandered away and he lost them. He couldn't find them. They'd gone, uh, they'd gone astray. And the neighbors came to console him and they said, you know what? I'm, I'm so sorry you lost your horse and your son. This is, this is so bad what has happened. And the man said, well, how do you know that it's bad? Then the next day, the horse and the boy, they wandered back home. They showed back up, and, and it was kind of crazy, but uh, 13 wild horses came back with them. And it was like, this was a great day for this man because he got all these new horses. His son's back. The horse is back. His neighbors uh, came to him and, and congratulated him and said, this is so good. Look, this is so good. You, you lost your horse. You lost your son. And they came back, and you got 13 horses. And the man replied, how do you know? that it is good. Well, the next day the boy was trying to break one of the wild horses and he got on it, he was riding it, bucked him off and, and he broke his leg and his neighbors came and said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that this has happened. This is so bad. And the man said, how do you know that this is bad? Then the next day, it turns out that war had broken out and they'd come to, to bring all the able-bodied young men to go to war. But the man's son couldn't go because his leg was broke. And that's the end of the parable. The question that pops up all through that parable is this question, how do you know? This idea that in life circumstances, we can only see in a moment in time. You remember when we were in Romans 8, and we were talking about how God works all things for the good, and we showed the back of that needlepoint piece of artwork, right? And we just see all these random things, and on the front was a beautiful you know, design that had been put together by a masterful designer. And so last week we talked about wrecked, and we talked about it from the perspective of in our hearts, right? That God wrecks our heart. We talked about the state of our hearts. Heart and how God got a hold of Paul's heart and it wrecked him in just such a way of the mercy and grace that was poured out on him. He got this hunger and he cared, began to care so much about the lost, about his neighbor, about his fellow kinsmen. That at the beginning of chapter 9, he says, listen, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I would give up my salvation if all my neighbors could be saved. That's how hungry he was and how wrecked he was, how broken he was. We found that God breaks our hearts to, to, to shed us of ourselves, to wreck our own plans, to fall in shambles, to change our reality of who God is, to understand better who he is. And then he asked Paul to be obedient. He said, go to this town and your purpose will be revealed. This morning we're going to talk about, instead of the state of our heart, our state of mind. Paul gets into here, I mean, pretty intellectual chapter 
in chapter 9, uh, Peter, it, 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 we're pretty confident in Second Peter chapter 3, Peter was talking about this passage when he said this, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some things in these letters are hard to understand. That's what Peter said. Some of these things in these letters are hard to understand. Things the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do to the rest of the scriptures. Said there's going to be some things that are difficult to understand. This is that chapter for me, okay? It's going to be this chapter for you because uh, we are just human beings and God is God. But we're going to take the truths that are here that are important because we're going to talk about our state of mind. When we become wrecked in our state of mind, where we begin to question, where we begin to wonder, like, this does not make sense. These circumstances happen in my life. And I don't understand it. And we become not just wrecked in our heart, but wrecked in our state of mind. And we start not thinking very clearly. And this is what Paul is going to address here. i got to address one thing. This chapter is about a sovereign God. I want to take just a few verses, lay that foundation of a sovereign God and what that means. Uh, in Second Samuel verse, or chapter 7, verse 22, it says this, how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. You know, God is called sovereign Lord over 300 times in the Bible. Sovereign Lord. So what does sovereign mean? Dictionary definition of sovereign is a self-governing, independent, possessing, supreme power, or authority. At the end of the word sovereign is the word reign. We say that a king reigns. That means he is the ruler, the one with the right to make the rules. Someone who is sovereign is the ruler, the king, and the one who has the right to make the rules. So many times in life, we so badly want to rewrite the rules. We want to be our own God. We do not want to accept that God is in complete control, that he has never been surprised, that he, is, he has never been taken like, whoa, I can't, whoa, what just happened? That doesn't happen to God. It does not happen to God. I want to share some more verses with you. First Chronicles 29 Verses 11 through 12. O Lord, you are great, mighty, majestic, magnificent, glorious, and sovereign over all the sky and earth. You, Lord, have dominion and exalt yourself as the ruler of all. You are the source of wealth and honor. You rule for all. You possess strength and might to magnify and give strength to all. First Samuel chapter 2. The Lord both kills and gives life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord impoverishes and makes wealthy. He humbles and he exalts. He lifts the weak from the dust. He raises the poor from the ash heap to seat them with princes. He bestows on them an honored position. The foundations of the earth belong to the Lord. He placed the world on them. One more, Psalm chapter 50, the 50th Psalm, verses 10 through 11. For every wild animal in the forest belongs to me as well as the cattle that graze on a thousand hills. 
I keep track of every bird in the hills and the insects of the field are mine. I want you to just put everything aside this morning and I want us to just sit in awe of our creator. Okay? I want you to put all the anxiety, I want you to put all the worry of you wonder how you're your life is going to pan out, how your job is going to pan out, how your finances are going to pan out, how your marriage is going to pan out, how your kids are going to pan out. I want, you to, I want you to put all that to the side just for a minute and take the pressure off yourself, okay, to be successful. And realize we serve a sovereign God who, if he feeds the birds, if he... If, if he takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you? God, it's so easy to say and read. It's so easy to say. I just said it. You will find me throughout the next week and last week doubting it, forgetting it, not living it. But it is absolutely true. The closer you can get to resting on it and anchoring your life in it, the more he can just reach the loss through you. That he can change people's lives through you as your faith grows. I, I, want, I want to share with you three things that you'll be tempted to believe when your state of mind is wrecked. When you're just completely like, this don't make no sense. When you get there, there's three things you're tempted to believe. The, the, the first one we find in this, this chapter, and I told you last week, wait, i got to do something. You know, last week, remember I talked about my piano lesson? And how we're going to learn some things. We're going to learn some jazz and we're going to learn some classical and we're going to do all that so we can learn Sweet Home Alabama. All right. Oh, I'm muted. Let's see that Joe get me. Maybe. There it is. Can y'all hear that? So this is just because, you know what, the one comment I got after last week's sermon, why didn't you play Sweet Home Alabama? Like, why didn't you go to the piano and do it? So this is when I said, when he said, what do you want to learn? I said, Sweet Home Alabama, he did this. And I went, I'm in. All right, so there was Sweet Home, and the first person that yells out Freebird, church is over. <laughs> we are stopping there. So you just heard a preacher play Sweet Home Alabama during a sermon. You can take that and do with it what you want. You have to understand what Paul is talking about here. The, 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 like the, real, the real words of what he's saying, who he's talking to, why he's saying it, before we can, before we can celebrate it. All right, he, he, He's writing here. He's turned from chapter 8, which is like the most celebratory, just like we are all in. And, 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 and Paul is so excited about this God who is always for you. And if he's for you, nobody can be against you to just completely brokenhearted in the first of chapter 9. And he changes his whole direction of what he's writing about. He turns to the nation of Israel, the people that God chose. And he turned to questions he knew that his, his audience, the people were going to read, he turned to questions that he, I don't know how he knew they were going to be in their mind. Maybe he just knew, maybe he'd heard, maybe he'd gotten rumors, maybe other people were asking him. But he begins to, to, to try to address some difficult concerns. When he says, 
that you know, that he tells that God is predestined, that he is all these things, he's in complete control and power. And then he starts to answer this question in chapter 9, but wait, if he chose Israel, how did they reject him? How did a majority of them reject God if he chose them? This is a difficult question to answer. And he starts addressing this in the very first verses. And he says, what I told you, like they had all the benefits, right? They had the temple, they had the promises, they had the law, they had every opportunity. And I am broken hearted that so many of them have denied him, that they have not accepted the Messiah for who he really is. And it breaks my heart. And so then he goes into, let's read these verses. I want, I want to share you. First thing you'll be tempted uh, to believe when your mind is wrecked is one, that as God has failed to keep his promise. When things go wrong, you're going to go to chapter 8 and be like, but you said you were working everything to my good. You didn't keep that promise today. I got, they just called me and told me I had cancer. They, 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 I just found out my marriage is in shambles. I just, I, just, I just found out that I'm losing my job. I just found out that somebody stole everything from me. I hate that feeling. Y'all ever had something stole from you? Somebody stole my truck one time. I did not love it. You will be tempted to believe that his promises failed. This is what he says to the Israelites. He dresses it head on. I want to dress it head on. It is not as though God's word has failed. And he begins to explain this in illustration to them of how some of Israel could reject God and how some could not. Some would accept Jesus as the Messiah and some wouldn't. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, not because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. In 8b, he says, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. I mean, Paul is blowing this, these people's minds right now because the Jews had lived believing that if they were part of Israel, if they could trace their ancestry, uh, it's kind of like Eastern Kentucky where you say, who's your daddy and who's his daddy and who's their daddy? Right? That's what we do in Eastern Kentucky, figure out who's who and whether people have value or whether they don't. And so this is what they were doing then. I, because I can trace my lineage back to Abraham, I'm part of God's chosen. It doesn't, nothing else matters. And he tells us, here Paul tells us, who are the real children of God? Who are the real people? Who is the real Israel? Who are the real chosen ones? And we find here that they're not a particular, they're not a member of a particular race or institution. Oh man, that would preach a while in today's Christian environment. That we can get confused because we've taken membership at a church, because we've been baptized, because we are part of this denomination or that denomination, that we are part of God's church. And he says, it's not any one member of any institution or organization or, or nationality. That is not the real children of God. He says, it's not any particular parent parentage or heritage in other words just because you're Abraham's children it doesn't mean God's favor that you are saved that you will be perfect 
You, you don't get it that way. He says, but it is the children of the promise. You remember what Abraham, why hit what, what was counted to him for his righteousness? His faith. When God called him and said, I need you to get up and go, I'm going to give you a country. And Abraham got up and went. It was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. But it's the children of the promise, those who believe in God. And we're going to understand this even more in a minute when he just dives into this. By the end of chapter 9, you're going to be like, I get it. I get it. So first, we're going to be able, we're going to be tempted to believe that when things go wrong in our life, that God's promise has failed. And he tells us immediately, it's not true. God's word will never fail. It has not failed. The promise has not failed. It's not his understanding that's messed up. It's ours. I want you to, 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 to read these next verses with me. Because I, I told you that God is sovereign over all, that think kingdoms rise and fall. This is something that if you have a... Uh, if you're like me, you struggle to understand how God can be active. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it says he's acting all things to his will. And it's going to get played out. If you're like me, you struggle to comprehend that. Because when I drove here today, I could have come like 10 different ways. And I picked the way I wanted to drive to the church today, right? We have free will. But here we're going to wrestle with some verses and truth and attributes about God that just challenge our intellect. Are you ready? Romans chapter 9, this is verses 11 through 12. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, this is Jacob and Esau. These are uh, Abraham's grandsons, I think. Isaac, yeah. Um, grandsons. And they're getting ready to be born. And you remember the story from the Old Testament. Maybe, if not, he summarizes it here. But it says, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Before these two twins, before these babies had been born, God had, pre, uh, he, he had preset a path for them, and he had chose one over the other. Well, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? It's at his complete will. And, and, and notice that his sovereignty is also goes in with all his other attributes as God, that he is loving, that he's careful, that he's just, all those things. So they, he's addressing this question, like God can pick part of Israel and, and not part of Israel, and he is the God who selects all. It doesn't mean his word or his promise has failed. And so the second thing we will begin to question and, and, and believe is that God is unfair in his sovereignty or that life is not fair. Let me rephrase that for you. If we know, like the Bible tells, that, that God is a sovereign God, then when things go wrong for us, we'll say, that's not fair. That's not fair. But Paul says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. What are y'all going to do with that? I mean, I'm, I mean, you can't. Right, I've gone back and I've tried to say, oh, he just foreknows who's going to do what and who isn't. This says, I raised Pharaoh up. I hardened his heart. I chose to use him for this. We will think God's sovereignty is not fair, that life is not fair. There was a, uh, a lecturer one time by the name of R.B. Cooper, and he used this illustration to help us understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He said, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling to only one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, His chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise the responsibility as human beings. This seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes. Fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. Have I gone too deep? Do y'all get what he's saying there? There's two sides. You'll be tempted to hold on to one rope. And we've seen it. We've seen people that just hold on to full on to... You know, they'll go so far to say God chooses, he does everything, he's in complete control. We don't even have to go out and preach the gospel. I mean, he's the God he can, who can resist God's will. It's just going to happen. He's, he's in complete control. He is sovereign. And then we'll go, or we'll go over here all the way on the other side. It's all up to us to live this out. And we put all the pressure on ourselves, and it's our responsibility to work out our salvation and earn it. And we go all the way over here. And somehow the both are true, and we're going to see it in one chapter. And so we become thinking, is this fair? Is it fair? Is it fair what has happened in our life and that situations that we're in? It also reminds us that there's no such thing as luck or accidents. You ever say, man, they got lucky? Or, like, I mean, uh, it's, like this, um, uh, it's like this cowboy went to buy some life insurance, and, and the broker asked him if he had any accidents in the past year, and the cowboy replied, no. He said, but I was kicked by a horse, and I was chased by a raging bull, and I was bitten by a snake that laid me up for a while. And the agent said, well, Weren't those accidents? He said, no, they all did it on purpose. <laughs> and, and so you will, you will look at your life and see mistakes that you made. This is how I understand God's sovereignty. It gives you in this moment to look back at your entire past and the entire 
wreck of a mess, the abuse, the sin, the wrong, the, 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 the things that happened to you that you could not control. And you'll look at them and you say, that is a mess. And God says, I can use it for good. That you can trust God. You can trust Him. This leads to what he says next. Uh, that we'll be tempted to believe. Honestly, we'll be tempted to just throw in the towel. That we'll be tempted, uh, maybe as you've even gone through this and, and begin to believe God is completely sovereign. So we'll be tempted to believe that God has failed in his promise. Uh, we'll be tempted to believe that he's unfair in his sovereignty. And then we'll be tempted to believe that we are free from responsibility if you believe those two things. And so Paul asked the question we all want to ask. If God is completely sovereign and he's making whatever he wants and hardening some people and giving mercy on some people and it's just like he gets to pick who's going to be saved and who's not. One of you, me, he's talking about me, he's talking about you. He said, one of you said to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his, resist his will? Then why do we say you've got to believe that you've got to pursue God? That you, Why does it even matter if God is picking everything and he's completely sovereign? Why does it matter what I do? I can't resist what he wants. The problem is we don't know who he's picked and who he hasn't picked and how he's working in our lives and we don't know what he has for us. And so they ask this question, well, why does God still blame us? Who's able to resist his will? And I love Paul's response. For me, it's a little bit of a cop-out. Like, I really want to know the answer. But he says, who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Who are you to question a truly sovereign God that says, I pick, I choose you, but you also have to choose me. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? In other words, if he's God, can he make some to put a you know a pretty vase and put flowers in and then make some for, to be used for a pot of beans? Absolutely. There's a quote that talks about when God says, I love Jacob, Esau I've hated, and people struggle with that. How did God even hate Esau? And there's lots of stuff we could get into that about, about why and what that really means in the context but the real truth is that what should really wreck you is how God could love Jacob. Because we are all sinful and don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. And, and if it, it, it upsets you that he hates one, he should hate all of us. We are all broken and we have all failed. It should wreck our hearts to um, believe that there is a God of mercy and grace that loves a sinner. 
I want to take you out of this. I don't want you to get here, right? Because this is the temptation with this verse that we're just robots. You want to see me do the robot? I didn't really practice. I can't really do it. But it's a temptation, right? If God is really sovereign, he's in complete control, then you're tempted to think, man, what are we? Just all robots going through life doing what he asked for us to do, and we just, I'm going to go to Texas Roadhouse now. Or is there something bigger? There's something bigger that says, now how far have we got that the Gentiles who never had the law standard of righteousness? The very people that you Israelites, you, you hate them. You think they're hopeless. That those very ones who never even had God's law given to them, they didn't even know right from wrong. But they have attained righteousness. Righteousness by a five-letter word, faith. They had faith. That sounds like personal responsibility to me. But Israel, following the law of righteousness, failed to reach the goal of righteousness. And why? This is Philip's uh, a paraphrased version of Romans 9, 32-33. And why? Because their minds were fixed. Your mind's messed up. Your mind's a wreck. Your state of mind. You, you become fixed. They were fixed on what they achieved instead of what they believed. They had not put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They tripped over that very stone that the scripture mentions. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever, and whoever what? Believes on him will not be put to shame. We have this chapter on God's sovereignty. And he ends it with an impetus on our responsibility. Two ropes. We got to cling to both. We got to be willing to trust God when things get messy and it doesn't make sense. That know that His promise never fails. Knows that His ways will will accomplish whatever He puts in His heart. And know at the same time when He just like He went to Abram, who became Abraham, and said, "Follow me." He's calling that to you right now, and you have to choose whether to follow him or not. You have to choose. Are you going to trip over Jesus and just think he's some intellectual exercise and some great teacher, or are you going to give your whole heart? Because he goes right in in chapter 10, and we're going to get there next week. He says, For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all who richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Second Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but is being patient towards you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come 
to repentance. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know. All those things you're tempted to believe that God is unfair. That God has failed on his promises. That your decisions and the life that you live and the commitment that you make to God does not matter. It has eternal consequence. Not just your actions, but the reality of what you believe. Romans chapter 10 is probably one of the most famous verses. We've heard about salvation. It says if you confess with your mouth, if you profess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he was resurrected, that you will be saved. This morning, I'm, I'm asking you to cast out those doubts, the wrong beliefs, the things you're tempted to believe wrong. Maybe you believe the wrong things about church, or maybe you believe the wrong things about yourself, and that you've gone too far, and that you've sinned too much, that you're too broken, that you're too wrapped up in addiction, that you are you're too far gone, and God says, whosoever will, not whosoever will get their act together and start acting better, but whosoever believes on him.